I thought I didn't have a choice. I thought I was a victim of despair and could only be despairing. But I learned through Melissa and Doug, our toy company, that I could take that very same despair and either use it to feel really dark and really down or choose to channel it into positive creation. And that is what I have to actively do or I will become submerged by the despair. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that, you silly rascal, you. I'm happy you're here. I've got a great conversation to share with you today. My guest is Melissa Bernstein. She's the co-founder of Melissa and Doug's Children's Toys, which she has been running with her husband, Doug, for the past 32 years. Melissa is wildly successful, has all the trappings of wealth and external success, and yet she still suffers from existential depression and anxiety, a condition that she has felt since her earliest memory on earth. She goes deep today and shares what it's been like to walk around with a brain that not only helped her create and design 5,000 children's toys, but that also feels to her like a prison of despair. And we'll get into that in just a minute, but first I want to say hello to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners group on Facebook. Yes, on Facebook, there's this group called Crazy Money Listeners. Go to Facebook, search for it, and if you can't find it from there, I can't help you. Anyway, new members, Deborah Lee, Brendan Freeman, Brendan Freeman, Brian Nisig, Frank Glover, and Blake and Victoria Morar. Blake, thank you so much for the kind note you sent this past week, and it means a lot to me that Crazy Money means so much to you. It's just a lot of fun to prepare and offer to the world. And it's nice when the things you offer to the world are appreciated. That's all I'm saying. I want to say hello also to Gregor Hoffaker from Zurich, Switzerland, who sent me a kind note on LinkedIn because apparently Swiss people hate Facebook. You heard it here first. Anyway, Gregor, thanks also for the kind words. Also, the winner of this week's trivia contest on the Facebook Crazy Money Listeners Group is Linda Peters Bowden. She wins a free t-shirt. Big deal, Linda. I know your day has just been made. Okay, let's talk about Melissa Bernstein. Becoming a parent opens your eyes to a lot of things that you just hadn't been seeing for a long time, like parks, for example. I remember when our kids became toddlers, and then what would you do for any spare moment? You try to take your kid to a park to entertain them and let them have fun. Prior to becoming a parent, I'd drive past parks all the time. The only time I remember noticing them was like in college, where I would go drink beer in parks or do other terrible things in parks before I had my own place. But now that you're a parent, you're like, oh, parks are for kids and they're fun and they're places to go. Well, one of the things I remember learning about was kids' toys. And I remember seeing the Melissa and Doug insignia on these kids' toys, and it really stood for something. It was like, this is a, a very intentionally designed product that is something of high quality. And I always remembered that brand. And so even though my kids are much older now, we're not really in the market for a lot of Melissa and Doug products. I was struck when my wife, Stacy said, hey, you've got to see this segment I just saw on CBS Sunday morning. And she sent it to me and it's all about Melissa Bernstein. And it's talking about her new project called Lifelines, which I'll tell you about in a second. But what I learned is that Melissa Bernstein is incredibly wealthy. She and her husband, Doug, have been married for 32 years. They've got six healthy children. And here is this person that from the outside looks like she has it all. Well, she has it all and more because she has this condition that I mentioned before, existential anxiety, depression. She's been walking around with this going on in her head for as long as she can remember. And what else goes along with that? Oh, suicidal thoughts and this feeling that she has to do everything perfectly or that she's a complete failure and that there's no point to her life. 
And I found it really interesting that this success, this creativity coexist in the same brain. As I mentioned before, she considers it a prison of despair, but it's also the one that provides what she calls a boundless expanse of imagination that is white space that allows her to create all these toys and to envision the company that has become this multi-hundred million dollar thing or much more than that. Don't know, we didn't get into the specifics of the business. And yet, despite all that money, despite all that success, she can't change the way her brain works. And as she says later in this interview, you know, nor would she try to do that. For decades, Melissa kept her condition to herself and tried to fit in by pursuing conventional indicators of success, good grades, going to the right college, then pursuing the right career. That would have been law and then investment banking. She walks us through that whole process. But earlier this year, Melissa came clean to the world with this condition, and she's launched Lifelines, which is more of an online portal that includes an app, a book called Lifelines, which I've read that you'll hear about, and a resource center for anyone dealing with severe mental health issues. She wants to share her story so that others dealing with the same conditions have a place to go and know that they are not alone in the world. If you have those, or if you know somebody who does, I encourage you to go to lifelines.com. There's a link in the show notes. And to take a listen to this interview with Melissa Bernstein, because she's a very unique human being who's sharing her experience with the world. Her vulnerability, I think, is going to help a lot of people. So please enjoy this conversation with Melissa. Melissa Bernstein, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Paul. You've recently published a book called Lifelines, which chronicles your lifelong struggle with mental health issues. What is existential anxiety and depression? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, for me, it was an utter crisis of meaning where I had no idea why I was here, what the meaning of life was, if we were all ultimately going to just expire. And then most importantly, I think personally was, what am I meant to do during my brief time here? And because I couldn't get the answers to those questions, it led me to deep, dark despair because I felt like there was no meaning to existence. And for a long time, I felt I wasn't able to make meaning within a meaningless existence. These kinds of issues pop up for a lot of people in early adulthood. When did you start feeling these questions inside of you? Well, I believe it was from the moment I took my first breath. I wasn't conscious of it then, but my mom said that I cried 24-7 for the first year of my life. Like I could not be quieted and they weren't the normal screams of just like a colicky child. What was your first memory of having these kinds of questions to grapple with? I mean, from the moment I had thoughts, I was asking myself these questions and I always felt like I never belonged here, that somehow a spaceship had flown above the earth, opened up and like plopped me here. And I didn't belong here. I was like going against the current. There was like a freeway all going one direction. And somehow I was like trying to make my way in the opposite direction. And it was this deep sense of unsettledness and that something was very, very wrong in my being that I could not get over. It just never, it's still with me. If I allow it in times at which I'm weaker, you know, I'm not as like supporting myself with my practice. It's, it's there. It's there right now. Actually, I'm in kind of a, like a lull. <laughs> what do you do when it shows up? 
it's all about a deliberate and intentional practice every single day to get out of my head and into my heart. When I'm in my head, it's very bad. My head is a prison of despair. (laughs) You talk about in the book how you start every morning by choosing positivity. How do you will yourself to be positive? Can you just decide to not be depressed and not be lost in your thoughts? I mean, I can choose to not get enmeshed in my thought patterns in my head because my head tells me really negative things like life is futile. Why do you even try? But when I'm engaged in like true creating or living or doing in a positive sense, like really kindling the seeds of self-expression into creativity, then I'm blissful. So, you know, my mantra as a child became step on out of the head, moving into the heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And that became my very act, which I still have to do is get out of the head move into the heart and then take all that despair, all that negativity and just channel it into jubilant. Like that's a choice. And I do have a choice. You know, part of my journey has been learning that I thought I didn't have a choice. I thought I was a victim of despair and could only be despairing. But I learned through Melissa and Doug, our toy company, that I could take that very same despair and either you know, use it to feel really dark and really down or choose to channel it into positive creation. And that is what I have to actively do or I will become submerged by the despair. That's a pretty heavy mantra for a child to come up with. I think I was just trying to get as many cookies as I can. I wasn't dealing with those kinds of things. How did this manifest in your childhood and your behavior and your interaction with other kids? Oh, that's a good question. Unfortunately, because that kind of thinking and the qualities that made it so I thought those things, which is a very overly sensitive personality that makes me really challenging to be with and makes living in this world incredibly challenging because I'm always asking why I'm always asking questions. I'm highly emotional, very overreactive, and was always told, you're to this, you're to that. Can't you just chill out? Can't you just be normal? Can't you just calm down? And of course, when you're told that, and it's the way you are is the other way, you get the message very early on that who you are is not acceptable to conventional society. So you asked how I fit in. It was really two ways. And by the way, I didn't fit in, but my two coping mechanisms became, you know, when I could, I went up into the boundless expanse of my imagination. And that was my place of bliss and a realm that I controlled entirely because I could forge anything out of that white space. And I think to many white space is terrifying because of the possibility to me, it's everything. And I mean, when I can create within the freedom of my imagination, like there is nothing more euphoric. So I did that whenever I could. But unfortunately, when I had to be down here on earth, I basically adopted a facade to fit in. And because I needed validation and I wasn't going to get it through being who I was, I clung to perfectionism and pleasing others as my modes of existing in the world. And unfortunately, perfectionism is something you can never ultimately win at. And that became really punishing. It was noticed even by your first grade teacher. Yep. I was immediately sort of 
called out for being overly hard on myself to the point where even at age four and five in school, if I got anything wrong, even a, you know, an innocuous question, I would become uncontrollably upset and really want to punish myself. And it was because, again, I hated who I was. Like I knew from very early on that who I was would not be acceptable in this world. And I was trying so desperately to be someone else and get my only validation through the gold stars and the performance and the pleasing others that when I failed at that, I was in effect worthless. And I wanted to punish myself for being not who I wanted to be. Now, in today's world, that behavior would most likely be addressed through some kind of medication. In the 70s and 80s, did your parents try to go that route with you? Nobody ever knew. One of the craziest things about my life is I hit it, I guess, fairly effectively from not only myself, because admitting, again, who I was, was tantamount to saying I will never belong. And, and by the way, I wanted desperately to be popular and belong. So I had that unfortunate other side of me that was like, I didn't want to be a weirdo and a loser and someone who muttered verses to herself all day. Like I wanted to be cool and, and fit in. And that's all I tried to do. So I think it obviously worked because no one ever knew that I was so despondent. When you had crying jags because you got an innocuous answer wrong, people didn't say, what's going on with Melissa? Again, I guess not. And the thing was, I performed at a very high level for a very long time. I mean, I was able to do that. And I think it wasn't until college when I truly had a breakdown because I I had to take an incomplete in a course because I overwhelmed myself with too much. And that, to me, that incomplete was tantamount with unworthiness and worthlessness. And it caused a complete breakdown. But really, until then, honestly, like I didn't fail, unfortunately. So the bar just kept getting higher and higher. And any failure I had, I should say I did fail. I didn't tell anyone. You know, I would try out for things and not get them or I'd get a bad grade, but I'd hide it and I beg the teacher to retake it. Like I had my, you know, my ways of getting the A's and it became like my drug, like the A's were an addiction. Because if you got A's, then you knew you were doing at least something that was valued by the external world. Exactly. It was all about external measures of success because I had never accepted myself for truly who I was in these dark, stigmatizing overexcitabilities that gave me this ability to create. And the other thing is, you know, coming full circle, the reason I'm here is because I create and creating is my salvation and it's my meaning and it's my connection to others and I never associated with being a creative person. I hated creative people and I hated myself. It was like, <laughs> I didn't want to be weird. Like I didn't right. want to be one of those people who's like singing to themselves. And, you know, it was just like I disdained anyone who was creative. And of course, that's who I am. So it was very odd. In fact, in ninth grade, which was still junior high school then, I actually, like, I was also very musical. Like, I played every instrument. I sang. Like, I love music more than anything. And I was thinking of being a professional musician. But there were these things called superlatives that you get at the end of ninth grade, like the adjectives that depict certain students. And 
I desperately wanted to get one of the ones related to looks. That was all I wanted because <laughs> I literally, like me, I wrote that book. It's the most, like, I was so superficial that I wanted best looking, best couple, best dressed, best smile. I think there was like best eyes. I was like, I have to get one of those. It's like, my life will be complete. And I ended up and the whole school voted on it, like all the grades. So it was talk about a validation by your peers. And I ended up getting most musical, Mm. which was like the only skill-based thing I think other than like most likely to succeed. And I mean, I should have been so happy. Like I was being recognized for like a pretty cool skill. And I was so upset and disgusted and sad and angry that when I got my yearbook that year, I ripped out the page and threw it in the trash. And like, I think about that and it makes me so sad. I mean, it's hard to believe now because I don't even wear makeup now. Like I'm trying so desperately to be exactly who I am. And then I didn't want to associate with being musical even that I, you know, threw it in the trash. I got voted most school spirit and biggest complainer. That's you what did? I got it. How yeah. Could you be both? I, I, that, exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like, how can you be that so clearly sums up the duality? And by the way, the one thing you don't want your spouse to find out about is that in eighth grade, your classmates voted you biggest complainer because you'll never win another argument. She's like, oh, biggest <laughs> complainer. Didn't start with me. But let's talk about the music. Okay. So last week, I interviewed Moby, the DJ, electronic dance music pioneer. And he said as a kid that music allowed him to take the pain and make it interesting. Does that resonate with you? So in a way, but for me, the most incredible experience happened. So I went to this Girl Scout camp when I was a little girl. And I write a verse about this. It was so profound. Uh, We were sitting at a campfire circle one night and someone was playing the guitar And when I heard the sound of the guitar, it did something to my emotional frequency, the vibration of the strings. And I literally felt myself drawn to it like a moth is drawn to light. I was like transfixed. And I was like, in my head, I said, I have to play guitar. Like there wasn't even an iota of question. It was like, I need that. And I came home. I was literally like maybe five. And I said to my parents, I have to play guitar. I have to play guitar. And I started playing guitar at like five and it did something to me, the strumming the guitar and that vibration that I needed so badly to lift myself out of this deep, dark despair and strumming the guitar and all music. It truly lifts my vibrational frequency to a place where I can exist in the world. But the compulsion to play guitar wasn't to achieve some third-party validation. It was because it was an expression of what was inside of you or it resonated with you on a different level. Yeah, I created from the time I was two. I wrote music, I wrote verses. So I innately created as a self-soothing method to channel the angst into order. And my verses are all metered. They're all rhyming. They have to flow in a song-like way or I can't even exist. I, I can't go to sleep. I can't breathe. And it's because there's such utter chaos in my head that that's the only way my innate being could make sense of the senselessness. So it was pretty deep and ironic that the verses are so simple and the thoughts I'm having are so deep. It was just interesting. However, my issue was I didn't 
connect to it. I felt like it was just this darkness channeling through me and I was a victim of it. And I was just like, fine, do it already. And then when it was finished channeling, I was like, oh, and I just would store it, you know, everything away in these drawers, never showing the world, never reading them again, because I didn't want to associate with it. I felt like it was darkness, like pure darkness. And I wanted it gone. And Lifelines, the book and the app and the community online is you sharing all those verses. And there's a whole lot of them with the world. It seemed to me, and you tell me if this is accurate or not, that this is sort of like a release valve channeling off all the excess thinking that it was otherwise bouncing around your head. And if it didn't get out, it was going to torment you in ways that if it were on the page, it would be some kind of relief. Yes, exactly. It was every fear, question, insight I had that I couldn't make sense of channeled into something where I could answer those questions or at least contemplate them and ponder them. So in one sense, it was channeling it. In another, it was trying to make sense of things. And ultimately, they became my own lifelines to save me because when I wanted to end my life, you know, I would repeat a lot of these verses, like I choose life. And some of them truly became like my deciding whether to end my life or not. And I tried to come to terms with it. Like if you end your life, where are you going to be? Well, and through those, I tried to make sense of the world. Ultimately, you know, I hid them all away. And when I decided that I would finally share them as part of my bid to be accepted as I truly was, there were nearly 3,500 of them. I'm sure I lost hundreds of them because I mean, I stored them from the time I was two. Wow. Wow. So when did you start designing toys? How did that come about? It was purely an accident. I never associated with being creative. In fact, I wanted to be a lawyer, I thought, because society, (laughs) like a lawyer for me is the most rigid in the box profession. Because that's what respectable people did. That's what society looked like. That's what success and sort of respectability was about. Yes. When I was 10, my parents were like, had people over and I was like thinking, what can I do with my life? I mean, this is me at 10. I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I need to do something that, you know, makes me feel good about myself in those days was like the cool profession, especially international law. And I decided I was going to be an international lawyer. This is at age 10 and go to Columbia Law School, which was number one at the time in international law. And I was going to become fluent in, in Japanese because Japanese was like the really hot country and I was going to like be this cool international lawyer. So I basically like walked in the room and I was like, I decided I'm going to be a lawyer. And I just like waited. And my parents' reaction was so good. They were like, what? Really? Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I was like, yeah, that's it. So I decided I would go down that path. And I mean, the story is kind of sad, but I'm a big believer in gut intuition, which of course I didn't listen to. And as I was in college, I was in my junior year and I was starting to prepare for the LSATs. Something crazy was happening. One, I was doing terribly on the LSAT. Like my brain is really, again, I'm a very simple thinker and I distill things to their simplest form something about the logic, I could not literally get, I was bombing each one. And I had this friend who ended up being like a justice. He was getting like perfects and he would be like, Melissa, it's, he was trying to help me. I'm like, 
because it was wet. I'm like, wet, my brain doesn't work that way. I can't seem to do it. And it should have been telling me, right, that, you know, logic is not going to be your thing. But of course, I didn't heed it. And as I started getting closer and closer to taking the LSAT in the spring, it was like the last time I could take it before applying because I was not doing well. So I kept pushing it off to try to study more. I was not sleeping. I was literally like a ball of knots. I mean, I should have been, it was telling me something. I walk into the LSAT finally and sit down, get the exam. And I have the worst panic attack of my life. Literally, I think I'm going to, I'm dying. I didn't even know what it was. I'm holding it up for dear life. I'm looking and like everything's swimming. An hour I sit there realizing like, oh my gosh, if you don't finish this test, Melissa, you can't apply to law school. And finally, after like an hour and a half, I stand up, I go to the front. I'm like, how do you avoid a test out? (laughs) I fill out the form and I leave. And I was like, I am not going to law school. I couldn't even believe it. So what do I do? You would think, okay, then your intuition is telling you like, do something creative. I mean, your whole life, you've been writing music, playing music. You thought you were going to be a professional. Nope. I was like, what is the most status worthy thing I can do? Because now I'm a complete loser. I can't be a lawyer. So the hottest job of the era was investment banking. Of course. Yeah. And those were the days of Michael Milken and Drexel Burnham Lambert. And it was like the most glamorous thing. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Now, by the way, numbers they don't do a thing for me. And like people can look at numbers and they create these beautiful models and they can take them places. My thing is words and notes. Numbers do nothing. So again, I should have realized like, this isn't going to be good for you. So it's funny you mentioned the LSAT. Two reasons. One, I bombed the LSAT and that's what kept me from a lifetime of being a lawyer. So I appreciate the LSAT for that. And Sarah Blakely, another you know creative woman's entrepreneur, also talks about how she wanted to be a lawyer and then didn't work out. And look what she created by not being a lawyer. God forbid either of you would have become attorneys. What a waste it would have been. I know. An investment banker was even worse because those were the years when they actually wanted you not to do anything with numbers to be an investment banker because they wanted blank slates. So the fact that I was fluent in Japanese and had all these cool experiences and whatever, had done well in school, I ended up getting one of the like one in a thousand most coveted jobs at Morgan Stanley, getting that financial analyst role after being flown to New York first class. It was pretty glamorous. But but at the beginning, the first thing you do is we took a mini MBA at Columbia. How ironic, because I wanted to go to Columbia Law School. And then I was there for this mini MBA. And again, the first class on like balance sheets, I'm like, I, I, I truly, I couldn't, the linearness of it, because it's all in my head. And then after the class, I was like, do you get this? You know, thinking they're all going to be like, no, they're like, what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean? It's a balance sheet. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, again, I was another fish out of water and really almost drowned there. (laughs) So when did the toy thing happen? So after like a year and a half at Morgan Stanley and Doug was my boyfriend at the time and he was happier in what he was doing, but still felt like it was, wasn't his meaning. Like we both felt like we weren't doing anything to want to get up in the morning and to save the world. And the truth is 
without him, I never would have had the courage to do it because I was following, you know, the conventional thing. I would have been terrified to tell my parents, like, I'm leaving this highfalutin investment banking world to like do what? But he encouraged me and I was so despondent. I was literally like a flower without sunlight and water. And I could barely get out of bed each day and go to Morgan Stanley because I knew I wasn't good at what I was doing and I didn't know why I was doing it. So we decided we would go away for one fateful weekend and decide what we were going to do together for the rest of our lives. And we immediately honed in on children because really all our parents had been involved in children and teaching and counseling and creating things for children. So we said, we're going to focus on children. And then we, it was a question of what, and then we said, why not products for children? Because a product, if it's an open-ended product can be the catalyst for igniting a child's imagination. And what could be greater than that? What made you successful in this way? And it's just so interesting that you you didn't stumble into it. You chose it, but you just chose something that you ended up being wildly successful at. Yeah. I mean, my favorite quote is by this Nobel Prize winning physicist who said, discovery is seeing what everyone has seen, but thinking what no one has thought. And that is basically my philosophy toward life. It's taking something that has existed that people there are aspects of it they like, but the experience is flawed in some way so that it doesn't deliver the beautiful engagement that you would want it to. It's morphing it and maybe it's injecting pizzazz, maybe it's injecting design sense, maybe it's injecting a play pattern that takes something that innately is joyful, but makes that experience so beautiful that the users can effortlessly engage in it. Is that what low skill, high impact means? Ooh, I read your book. I read every word. I got notes. I got crazy notes, Melissa. Yes. Low skill, high impact is something that you can effortlessly engage in. And the result is just beautiful. And I used it originally for all our crafting items because my kids would have these craft kits and they'd show this photo on the outside of what it looked like finished. And inevitably, they would start on this project and in the middle, they would be so angry because it looked nothing like the professional artist had done. It would frustrate them and they would end up like breaking it or throwing it. And I would be in tears, too, because something that was supposed to build their confidence really ended up frustrating them. So I said, this is ridiculous. Arts and crafts should be joyful. It should make kids want to say, look what I made. So we created a whole line of kits that were much simpler, that you couldn't mess up, that allowed kids to use their imagination and be creative. And the finished product would always look good. So that's where I coined it. But then I realized that that phrase could be used really for everything we did. And then when we would send our toys out for testing, it always became what the kids would say. And if it was low skill, high impact, we knew it would be a hit. If it was medium skill, high impact, it's possible with really good directions, you could get them you know, to a place where they could use it and, and get a great result. But anything that was high scale was really not going to be a product we made. So over the course of the past three decades, you've become very successful. You've made, by any measurement, a lot of money. Did the money and success 
satisfy the inner cry of your soul to be seen? That's a rhetorical question. (laughs) Uh, It did not at all. It can mask it. So you can believe that it is doing that for a long time. And hey, I'm the first one to admit having beautiful material things can certainly make your life more comfortable and can lead to some awesome experiences. And we've had every material thing you could ever imagine. So we have had some incredible experiences, but that is the point. No matter what you have, when it's external and material, it is never enough. And that's the problem is the more we had, the more we wanted, you know, you'd get the one thing, it would feel good for a few minutes. And then it was like, what's next? Because you can't keep chasing externally what is demanding to be filled from the inside out. And that's what my inner hole was just gaping. And I couldn't fill it from the outside. I needed to stop racing and look inward. And that's when I finally cracked in middle age, which is, I guess, why they call it a midlife crisis, because, you know, you can effectively race away from yourself for only so long until the exhaustion from doing so. When you are in pain, that is, you're resisting the pain, it leads to tremendous suffering, whether you are conscious of it or not. And ultimately, we can we can keep that suffering and sort of like put up the dam to resist it, you know, in our 20s and our 30s and starting in our 40s. But as I started to hit like my early to mid 40s, the exhaustion from resisting the pain and resisting who I was was becoming so great that that cry, that intuition of my soul, like, let me be seen. I'm tired of hiding in the shadows. I'm tired of you denying me and ignoring me. It was getting louder and louder and I couldn't exist in my body anymore. Were you afraid what people would think when you came clean? It was more than that. My journey at its core of the abyss was facing the existential nothingness and facing my own mortality. It was really more that, you know, what I was racing away from the most was the existential nihilism, which is like, in the end, it will be all for nothing. My coping mechanism became incessantly racing, engaging in activity every single moment. Every moment of my life had to be full so that I couldn't hear that cry, that drumbeat of mortality. Right. You talk about exercise. Can you share an anecdote about how your exercise was an example of that literal and metaphorical running away. Oh my gosh. I engaged in continual and incessant motion. And I studied abroad my junior year in Japan and I walked so much. I didn't ever stop moving, even when I was sitting at a table for dinner. And again, it became this obviously addiction, this need for control in a mind that was uncontrollable and powerless against mortality. But I would be sitting at a table, moving my legs, moving my arms, like in class, I would be walking. I must have walked 10, 15 miles a day and I wasn't fueling my body properly either. So when I would stop, I would shake involuntarily. And that's when you've really depleted your well to such an extent. I I couldn't stop. How do you function as a parent with this going on? You have six children, speaking of a fervent need to create. How do you perform the day-to-day tasks necessary to keep those kids moving forward and feel good about themselves in a way that you didn't? Well, ironically, 
having the company, having six children involved in so many other things. We have an entrepreneurship program at Duke University was a very effective means of coping for me for like 25 years. Because again, what did I need more than anything to drown out the drumbeat of my mind voice? I needed constant and incessant activity. And I think that's why for me, I became like the highest achieving existentially depressed person (laughs) because I didn't ever stop. And that was actually pretty effective. So having all the kids, like I was like, bring it on 15 games in one weekend and 10 birthday parties, bring it on. I'm going to do that. And I love nothing more than just having to go and do, and where am I going next? And I'm at a game. I got to run in the middle of the game. Ironically, it was really helpful. I mean, it was helpful to keep running away from it and not deal with it. You talk a lot in the book about how others disappointed you or rejected you. They weren't able to get their heads around what you were going through, or they didn't make the effort to get their heads around what you were going through. How has Doug been there? What is it about him that has made him the right partner for you for the past 32 years, I believe? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's not simply started with just not running away. And he met me when I was in the midst of a severe eating disorder. I weighed maybe 80 pounds. Like I was so frail, I could barely walk up a flight of stairs But like, he's loved me since the very beginning. And I think he didn't run away. He's always been by my side. He's always supported me. I mean, he can't understand it because, you know, who can unless you've been there. And I think that can be hard when you're in a really dark place. You want someone to understand it and no one can. It's tough. But I always knew he was there and supporting me and by my side. And that was incredible, to be honest. And he's really grown too. He's grown from, I think, someone who really needed to fix things and wanted to fix me would say things like, are you better today? You know, which is a really common thing. It's a very male approach. Yeah, exactly. Like, you feeling better? And I would be like, no. (laughs) Um, But he's been so open to growing and learning. And I think one of the greatest things he does now is he'll just allow, you know, because for me, the word allow, which is part of my journey, and it's the hardest letter for me, like allowing what I'm feeling, because it's not going to go away. But my relationship to it has changed. And, you know, I don't judge it. I don't deny it. I don't repress it. I allow it. And he too has to allow the fact that I vacillate greatly and I'm choosing to do this holistically. So I'm not on meds to get me sort of more equanimously in the middle. So I'm really, I guess you'd say manic. Like I have real incredible highs where, you know, I can create like 24 seven and don't want to sleep. And then I don't quite go that low because I'm so strong at like keeping myself, but I do go that low. I don't let people quite see that, but I go super low too. And when I'm low, I'll say to him, I'm having a really low day. And like yesterday, I was having a really low day. I didn't even know why, but I was like very emotional. And I was just like, I'm having a low day. I'm going to take a couple walks. Like I have to be out in nature. And then if I do my thing, by the end of the day, I'm usually like, like in the middle again. It's just allowing it, which is hard because when I feel that, that low, I'm like, oh, not again. (laughs) I don't want to go through this again. Like, no. And that's the wrong thing to do, by the way. It's just saying, okay, 
You're loaded, eh? And not taking it personally, like your situation isn't about him. Exactly. Exactly. And like yesterday, it's not about anybody. In fact, yesterday, one of my issues was I was trying to figure out why I was so low. I was like looking for the reason, which in itself all day, I was like, what's going on? And finally, I was like, there's nothing going on. You're low. (laughs) I ended up writing like six verses yesterday. And when I can look at something for me, I know it's like, the gold star again. But when I can look at the tangible result of despair and I can say, maybe this can help someone else. Like it brings me a lot of comfort because I can look at these six verses and I can say, wow, if someone else is ever in that place, I can show them these verses and maybe it'll help them get out of it a little sooner. Well, along those lines, tell me about the holistic lifelines project and what you hope to achieve not that it's about accomplishment. This isn't about accomplishment. <laughs> what? It's about meaning. To be honest, it is. And at the end of the day, for anyone who has existential despair, finding meaning is a tangible accomplishment. And I can't get away from it. Like if I just was like, ah, I'm just going to be here and accept everything, I would not be here. I mean, honestly, if I don't have my meaning, I'm gone. That's an intrinsic reward as opposed to an extrinsic reward. True. What resources are available through Lifelines and who is it meant to serve? Lifelines is really designed to show anybody that they're not alone. And I think when you go through feeling very stigmatizing feelings, like I and so many do, and feel unaccepted for those, you go to a really dark place. Isolation is a key component of depression. I mean, maybe the number one. That's why I was so depressed for so many years is because I felt like nobody would ever accept or understand me. So we're a peer-to-peer community. We're not professionals, but we do welcome everybody for exactly where they are and who they are. And that's really beautiful. We have workshops every single day. I mean, I'm doing one in a few hours. We talk about like really deep, dark feelings that most people don't talk about. And we share things. I mean, people share stories that are like, woo, and they say they've never shared them in their lives. So that makes me feel really grateful because so many people need help and support and they can't get it. Either they can't afford it or the waiting lists are too long. And many say, others say they've been in therapy for 20 years and they've never felt the feelings they felt in our warm, accepting group of peers. Because I think to be in a group where everyone is like, yes, I felt that. Oh my gosh. And to know that you're not alone in thinking you're the only one that feels this way. I mean, I got a letter yesterday from someone who was saying, my child is suffering and I've never shared it because I believe everyone else has perfect children and I'm the only one who has a child who has a mental affliction. And I wrote her back immediately. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so great you're saying that, but you're so wrong. Like I have six children and my kids have had mental afflictions. Everybody I know, if they're honest, their kids have gone through ups and downs. And that's what we're trying to say. Like we're all the same. We're all the same. Some of us just don't admit it. So that's the real key. It's, are we courageous enough to admit we're all the same? A couple more questions and I'll let you go. Would you trade your brain for anybody else's? That's an amazing question. Um, I would absolutely not anymore. (laughs) I'd like to borrow your brain. Can I get yours on a temporary basis, please? 
Yeah. And it's because, so my whole life I wanted to, and I wrote lots of verses about like cutting out my brain and getting rid of it and divorcing myself from it. I mean, it was always like, get it out. But, you know, like any paradox that we must accept and existentialism is about accepting the paradoxes of life, that same brain that gives me the existential despair is also curious enough to create such cool stuff out of that boundless expanse of white space. So it's all about the dichotomy. When I'm meshed in existential depression, I'm as low as I can go. But when I'm in that boundless expanse of white space, as I said, I mean, there can't be a drug that could bring me to a greater high. And when I come up with something by connecting dots from my life experience, it's like, giving birth. Truly. It's like the greatest feeling ever. What is it about your brain that allows you to see things that other people don't see? It's these overexcitabilities. So I have a heightened arousal of my central nervous system and many creatives do that allow us to feel life's experiences more acutely than others. So I've always said both the beauty and the pain of the world are unbearable to me. And they're in five areas. You know, I, it's one's intellectual and that's that rabid curiosity, right? That just, there's never enough to know. Like I'm always reading like five books at a time because I just want to know more. I will die having not known a fraction of what I want to know. It's emotional, feeling so acutely that it's like a dagger going through you, whether it's joy or pain, it's imaginational, It's going, having the ability to imagine anything and the possibility of what can be. And that might be the thing I do the most. It's sensual, which means your senses are really acutely oversensitive. Like I have to cover my eyes, like lights mess me up when I'm in rooms that are too noisy. Like I always feel like I just have to like huddle up because the stimuli of the world is so great. And I have a really bad touch sensitivity. So I have the, all my senses are like on hyper arousal. And then the last one is called psychomotor. And that might be the most unsettling one for me. It's that your engine is on too fast. And it's just that sense, again, it's the thing that impels my need to keep moving, keep talking, keep doing everything. And it's like, you can't do enough. It's like a over revving up of your engine that's continual and kind of makes you want to take risks and do some adrenaline pumping things just to kind of quell that need to to move. So the combination of all those that make living in the world really challenging, but also make me able to create from white space on demand. Wow. Pretty amazing cocktail of a brain you've got there. Well, yeah, I call it a blurse. Because I always thought it was just a curse and I wanted to kill myself for it because it made me really weird and made living very difficult. But now I can see the blessing in it. So it's not just a blessing, though, because I have days like yesterday where I'm like really, really low. So it's a blurse. Last question. Do you feel rich? Oh, Oh, that's an emotional one. I do now. Yeah. And I think richness in your soul, there's nothing like it. It's just the greatest feeling ever. And I feel rich now because I have connected my true self in all my hypersensitivities to others and enabled them to connect to their true selves as well. And I think that 
gift to me is eternal. And I think I'm looking for that meaning, that legacy that will allow me to be here maybe forever. And I feel like the more I can spark others to realize their meaning and in turn spark others, and it just keeps going, then I am truly, I'm a a well that is overflowing. That's great. Where can people find out more about the work you're doing at Lifelines? Lifelines Lifelines.com. And everything's free. Doug and I are doing this as our passion project to give back. All our workshops, all our content is completely free and it's very easy. And people can even write me directly. I'm Melissa Bernstein at lifelines.com. I respond to all my letters. I'd love that too. We will put links to the website in the show notes and hope everybody goes and checks it out. Melissa Bernstein, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for an amazing conversation, Paul. Wow, that is some heavy stuff. And as I was reading this book, I was overwhelmed time and again at the severity of emotions and the thoughts that Melissa experienced. And I was grateful that she fought through it, that she resisted the temptation to kill herself, which she spoke of very frankly many times. And the world's a better place with all her creativity and love and joy in it though she pays a very high price to bring it to the world. So let's jump right to takeaways. Number one, there's people walking around with a lot of intense stuff going on in their brains and their hearts, and you don't know what's happening to that person across the counter that you bump into in the store, the car next to you. So maybe what we can do is just try to be kind, to be patient and be kind with other people, give them the benefit of the doubt until you realize they're just a selfish asshole, in which case, screw them. But no, in general... Be kind, be patient, and try to love people, right? That's a pretty good policy. Secondly, money won't fix you. We've said this time and again. You can have all the dough in the world, and everybody will be jealous of you, but that doesn't mean your heart's going to feel special. It doesn't mean your brain is going to feel calm. And I think that, as Melissa even talked about, even chasing those things were efforts to feel calm, that chasing status that chasing accomplishment, they're basically just self-medicating. They're ways to take the attention of your brain off its own maniacal thinking. And that's worth keeping in mind as well. Other people that have a lot more than you might seem to be better off, not the case. And that brings me to number three. If you're going to compare yourself to somebody else, it's all or nothing. You don't get Melissa's incredible, creative, white space brain, which I think about what I could write, think about the jokes I could tell if I had that kind of boundless imagination. Wait a minute, are you also going to accept the prison of despair concept of her brain? Because that's what it is, her prison of despair. Since she was a little child, she felt like that. No, thanks. I mean, I'm glad she has that brain. Obviously, she wouldn't trade it, but I think I'm good. I think I'm good with whatever rationalization of my mediocre creative brain that I've come up with that is a little bit more, you know, in between the lines and not dealing with despair on a daily basis. But it's all or nothing. You can't pick and choose which aspects of somebody else's life that you want if you're going to trade places with them. And that's why I ask her that question. All right. Thanks again for listening all the way to the end. I greatly appreciate your interest in what we're doing here at Crazy Money. If you love it, which you must since you stayed all the way to the end, please do share with three friends email them the link, post it on the Facebook. Your endorsement of crazy money means a lot to those people who haven't had a chance to experience it yet along those lines. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast. I really appreciate you sticking around. I said that, it's time for me to go. All right, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.